Good afternoon. Well, you know, I, I like to start these things right on time, but I thought I would give people just a couple extra minutes because our friends at the city uh, streets department decided that uh, in honor of Bill Woldridge's lecture, they would tear up Kensington Avenue right in front of our parking lot. So I'm glad so many of you were able to navigate your way through that, uh, that mess and get in here. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Paul Levengood, president of the Virginia Historical Society, and I am delighted to welcome you to today's banner lecture here in the beautiful Robbins Family Forum. And as always, I'd like to take this moment to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make this lecture series possible. Before we proceed with today's program, let me bring you up to date of a couple of things on the calendar that you may want to uh, pay attention to. The first is the next banner lecture, which will be the first of 2014, uh, will take place here at noon on Thursday, January 23rd. That day, Sheldon Bart will deliver a lecture entitled, A Race to the Top of the World, Richard Byrd and the First Flight to the North Pole. So a uh, fascinating story about a, a Virginia native son, exploration, and uh, intrigue surrounding it, which I'm sure you'll want to come, come listen to. So that's January 23rd. The next installment of our See You in Class series, and I know several people in here are um, inveterate attendees of that, of that program, uh, begins tonight, actually, and there's still spots available in this class. Bert Dunkerley, who works uh, for the Richmond National Battlefield Park, will be here talking about um, Bacon's Rebellion. It's a two-part class. Uh, that begins tonight at 5.30, uh, so this evening at 5.30, and next Thursday at the same time. So if you are uh, feeling rebellious, feeling ornery, like you want to take on uh, the powers that be, please come and learn about the, uh, obviously, the uh, most famous rebellion uh, against the government of Virginia in 1676. And finally, you can find out more information about this class, the banner lecture I mentioned, or any of the things that we do, gallery walks, bus trips, behind-the-scenes tours, on our website, vahistorical.org, or you can pick up information at the museum shop when you leave today. Now, final bit of housekeeping. If you have a cell phone, please take it out. Make sure it is off or silent or crushed beneath your boot heel. <laughs> Whatever you need to do. They are wonderful little gadgets, but they do distract. So thank you, whoever I just heard, turn it off. Drawing from the engaging images in his book, Mapping Virginia, from the age of discovery to the Civil War, today's speaker will show the very different ways that cartographers, and by implication, their audiences, conceived of Virginia from generation to generation, from the 16th century through the Revolutionary War. Until the mid-18th century, these changing visions of Virginia had only a distant connection to changes in the colony's legal boundaries. Instead, they reflected the old world's evolving understanding of the place, from exotic Eden to much of eastern North America to the country around Chesapeake Bay to Imperial England's greatest province. William Bill Wooldridge is retired from Norfolk Southern Corporation, He's a graduate of Harvard College and the University of Virginia School of Law and served in the U.S. Army Judge Advocate General Corps. He joined Norfolk and Western, later Norfolk Southern, and rose through a succession of posts, ultimately becoming Vice President Law. He has served as president of the John Marshall Foundation, president of the Norfolk Historical Society, and on the boards of public radio station WHRO and the Library of Virginia Foundation. And we're, of course, Connected to him because in 2013, Bill joined the board here at VHS and has jumped in with enthusiasm into all that we do. Now, he's long been an avocational writer and historian and collector, and this book is the result of many years of work. It is a marvelous gift, let me say, for Christmas or for this, which is the final day of Hanukkah, and Bill will... Um, will be willing to sign it up at the shop. And to encourage your gift-giving seasonal impulse, we are offering a special discount on the book just today. It'll be 10% off to those of you who are not VHS members and 20% to 
to VHS members. So this is the point where you all go, ooh. <laughs> so for, uh, for this one day only, I don't mean to sound like a carnival barker up here, but one day only, this book is 20% off. It is a wonderful value, and Bill will be happy to sign it for you after the lecture. So it's not every day, because he's on the board, that I get to introduce one of my bosses, but I am delighted to do that, and I want you all to behave for my boss being up here. Uh, and join me in welcoming Bill Wooldridge, who will speak to us today about mapping Virginia. Well, thank you very much, Paul, and it's, uh, it's entirely my pleasure uh, to be here in this, uh, this cathedral of Virginia history to talk about some of my favorite relics which you can already guess are the maps of uh, Virginia from the uh, 16th, late 16th century uh, down through much of the 18th century. Uh, these maps give us a very straightforward, they're pictures, they give us a, a, a very straightforward understanding of how Europeans did think about, how they did see uh, Virginia. And all of this grows out of a collection of Virginia maps which I assembled uh, over a period of about 40 years. We had maps uh, hanging on the walls. We had maps in the closets. Uh, we had maps under the beds. Uh, I, I thought it was a, uh, a nice hobby. Uh, my wife thought it was a personality disorder. <laughs> and any of you who have the collecting bug uh, know that there's some truth to that. But whatever it is, the uh, collection is now enshrined in this uh, gorgeous book from the uh, University of Virginia Press uh, that Paul just spoke of. It has uh, 300 of the maps are illustrated, most of them in color, uh, it's a, uh, and, and it, 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 they really did do a fine uh, job with it. Uh, in addition to the maps themselves, the, the maps generate a kind of a narrative, a mini-history of Virginia, which, while it uh, is, is not revolutionary, it does provide some different sidelights, uh, aspects, perspectives on the Virginia history that we're most familiar with. So here is where we start. This is the very first printed map to include the name Virginia. Uh, it's by a man named Richard Hackluke. He was a Protestant clergyman, uh, he was indignant. He was just, he had had it up to here. The Spanish were way ahead of the English in colonizing the New World. And he wanted the English to get going and get uh, onto this enterprise themselves. So this map was designed to show that while the Spanish were, to be sure, well entrenched in the Caribbean and around the Gulf Coast, that there were areas to the north that were still open to the English, and not only were they open, but that the English had some legitimate claims to these areas. So this is an enlargement of the uh, northern part of the map, and you can see he gives us uh, uh, Bacalos, codfish country, uh, which the English discovered. He's talking about the Cabots uh, in 1490s. Uh, over here, the English on the west coast, that's Sir Francis Drake in 1580. And finally, and to our uh, point, here's Virginia, 1584, uh, referring to the uh, voyages uh, of exploration sent out by Sir Walter Raleigh. So here, right from the beginning, you can see one of the three main ideas of uh, Virginia that we'll be talking about uh, this afternoon. It's Virginia uh, with no boundaries, uh, really everything between New France, Canada in the north, and Florida in the south, extending indefinitely to the west. It's just this huge swath of North American continent. A very big uh, place, but Hackluck wrote to Sir Walter Raleigh that uh, your best planting will be about the Bay of the Chesapeans, Chesapeake Bay. And they missed a little bit. Uh, they hit on the outer banks of North Carolina instead. Uh, 
They approached the coast of America from the east, and this gives you a pretty good vision of why so often these early maps of Virginia are oriented with west at the top rather than north at the top. It's because this is the way you would see it as you're coming across the Atlantic uh, from the old world. It's the way your car navigation system probably works. It puts the direction that you're going in at the top of the map on the screen. The caption on this map reads, such was our arrival in that part of the new world which we call Virginia. The, the large pink island is uh, Roanoke Island, uh, the southern end of present-day Albemarle Sound. Keep in mind, this is west up here, so you've got to uh, rotate this in your mind's eye. You can see from the uh, sunken ships that the uh, outer banks were the, already the graveyard of the Atlantic in 1590. And this is the title page of the 1590 book uh, in which uh, the discoveries of Raleigh's men were related. The title roughly translate a, translates a, a strange yet true report of the products and customs of the inhabitants of Virginia. So how does this strange yet true report start with uh, maybe pictures of the inhabitants or lists of the products? No, it starts with Adam and Eve. <laughs> in the Garden of Eden. And it's not by accident because the English at first thought of Virginia as a sort of a Shangri-La, a primordial Eden uh, filled with what would later be called noble savages. And in 1705, uh, William Beverly, who was writing a history of Virginia, summarized uh, the outlook of those first Englishmen. They found the country so delightful and desirable, so charming and fruitful, that paradise itself seemed to be there in its first native luster. Virginia did seem to retain the virgin purity and plenty of the first creation and the people their primitive innocence. Well, after Adam and Eve set the scene, we do get to a, a map. Uh, it's titled, Part of America Now Called Virginia. So if it's now called Virginia, what did it used to be called? Uh, the story goes that the first explorers asked the Indians what the name of this new land was. And the Indians uh, did not understand English, of course. Uh, they took a guess. They said, Wingandacoa, meaning you have really nice clothes. <laughs> so Virginia was originally Wingandacoa, but uh, pursuant to this map, it's now called Virginia. Uh, Debris said this map would place Virginia before our eyes. You can almost feel his excitement at this wondrous new land. You rotate the map uh, 90 degrees, and it becomes quite recognizable. It's, it's not a bad uh, map at all. You can see the uh, outer banks of North Carolina, uh, a primitive Chesapeake Bay, and uh, Roanoke Island is still there, Albemarle Sound. It's actually the most accurate uh, map of any part of North America that was made in the 16th century. And although it is centered around the Outer Banks, uh, there are no actual borders marked. We're used to thinking of a place, I mean, if it has a name, it must have a perimeter. That's, that's, uh, that's the way we think about it. But in the 16th century, people thought of Virginia as, as we might still think of Siberia or Patagonia, sort of a distant, exotic region with no fixed bounds. And one of the wonderful things about these maps is they let you make a statement like that. You can talk about how people were thinking without being too abstract or hypothetical because they've drawn us pictures of their mindset. William Beverly uh, continued his description of the native Virginians as living in Eden. They seemed not corrupted by those pomps and vanities which had depraved and enslaved the rest of mankind neither were their hands hardened by labor, 
nor their minds corrupted by the desire of hoarding up treasure. They were without boundaries to their lands. These uh, illustrations were published at a time when printed books had largely supplanted uh, the old eliminated manuscripts of the Middle Ages, and that uh, created technological uh, unemployment among manuscript illuminators, and, and it's actually possible to trace uh, some of their careers. They moved from uh, illuminating manuscripts to uh, coloring prints and maps, and you can, you can see or sense at least the same uh, jewel-like precision uh, in some of these images uh, that you might have found a hundred years earlier in, in books of hours. Uh, here from a uh, Bible is a uh, world globe uh, and a picture of the Garden of Eden. It's a map, too. Uh, and uh, I say it has Virginia characteristics. Uh, I like to think of this as natural bridge, <laughs> although natural bridge had not yet been discovered. And what really tells us that at least we know we're in the New World is the turkey, which is, of course, native uh, to America and to Virginia. So we'll look at uh, three more uh, depictions of this continental Virginia. Uh, this is a late 16th century map which applies the name Virginia in the same large typeface as, say, uh, Spain in the Old World. Uh, and as you can see, uh, that is part of Canada, and there's a little bit of an indication of Florida, but most of this is meant to be uh, Virginia. In the uh, story of exam Virginia exhibit, which is being reworked here now, there's a, a famous uh, quotation from Colonel William Byrd. He said, in the beginning, all America was Virginia. And this is what he was talking about. And again, uh, Canada way up there north of the St. Lawrence River, Florida pushed down really to the bottom of the peninsula, and uh, the left of, rest of this is open, open to Virginia. Taking his uh, geography from maps like this, a Spanish priest wrote to the Pope in 1625, Most Holy Father, the land of Virginia is situated between New France in the north and Florida on the south. On the west, extending northward, is a great range of stupendous mountains which are impenetrable, rugged, and perpetually covered with snow. <laughs> so we here in the uh, balmy lowlands uh, not used to that kind of mountains, and we have a special respect for uh, those uh, people who live uh, in Charlottesville, Roanoke, and Lynchburg, and, and other places in the uh, perpetually snow-covered mountains. <laughs> and finally, this is a, a, a later and very elegant uh, Dutch uh, map, and uh, that's Florida, uh, really the Gulf Coast, and Virginia. Uh, embraces everything else. So exactly how far did this uh, big Virginia, this great, uh, greater metropolitan Virginia extend? Uh, in the north, it extended to somewhere north of Boston. Uh, there's Boston and there's Virginia. Now, I gave a uh, talk to the Boston uh, Map Society and uh, pointed out, I thought this interesting uh, observation uh, to them. They didn't see the humor in it at all. <laughs> this uh, little map uh, relates to the 1602 voyage of Bartholomew Gosnold uh, to uh, Cape Cod, uh, which he's actually the one who gave the name to Cape Cod, and uh, the general area that was called the northern parts of Virginia. Gosnold uh, later was a leader in the uh, Jamestown colony, and if you followed the reports of the Jamestown excavations, you remember the excitement when uh, they uh, discovered and identified his skeleton, uh, complete with the ceremonial staff indicating his uh, elevated rank. And now we have a, a small contest with no prizes. 
to find the uh, map in this slide. It's on Bill Kelso's tie. <laughs> in the east, uh, beginning in 1612, uh, Virginia briefly extended far enough into the Atlantic to include Bermuda. Now you say that's a map of Bermuda, but it is a map of Bermuda as a part of Virginia. Now, I have uh, mixed feelings about to losing Boston, but it's a shame we couldn't have held on to Bermuda. <laughs> the mapmaker has gone to a lot of trouble to emphasize Bermuda's Virginia affiliation. He ref this is a table which is uh, identified as the land holdings of the Virginians. And uh, we're going to look at two more details, the seal and this little extra map at the top. The seal uh, is the seal of the Council of Virginia, which had jurisdiction over Bermuda. And the little extra map is the Virginia coast. Uh, Cape Henry and Cape Charles, I think, are identified uh, on there. And uh, you can see Virginia extends all the way down to Florida uh, on the south. Now, as to the western bounds, the Virginia Company's 1609 charter extended Virginia to the Pacific, from sea to sea, west and northwest, in the words of the charter. The English knew that uh, Sir Francis Drake, whose portrait is there, uh, had been on the uh, west coast, uh, on the Pacific coast, uh, but they weren't very good at longitude at that point. They didn't have a clue where the west coast actually was. So the map recites that the Pacific's happy shores may be discovered in 10 days march from the head of James to the exceeding benefit of Great Britain and the joy of all true English. This transcontinental idea of Virginia was based on the charter but it gets very little play on the other 17th century maps of Virginia which uh, usually just picture Virginia as mid-Atlantic North America. Well, we've uh, looked at the uh, promotion of Virginia as a new Eden centered on the Outer Banks and then pulled the camera back uh, to see the uh, outer perimeter of this uh, vast, unbounded uh, North American Virginia. Now we come back closer to home, uh, to the James River and to Jamestown. Uh, as you know, Jamestown turned out not to be Eden. Uh, it was situated considerably up the river to be safe from the Spanish, and in 1611, Sir Thomas Gates decided to move the settlement even farther inland. The new settlement was called uh, Henricus. It's uh, close to where Hopewell now is. And this uh, remarkable little map, you, you could call it an imaginary map because it's drawn by someone who was certainly never in Virginia and apparently never saw a real map of Virginia. He's just working from written accounts that have come his way. Uh, but he does have some sort of a notion of Cape Henry and Cape Charles. He's got these forts on opposite sides of the entrance to the James River. Uh, and the, he's, he's uh, for some reason, uh, although the map was published in Germany, uh, Jamestown becomes a Jacqueville, a sort of a French Jamestown. And he's got the settlement at Henricus with this stockade across the peninsula on which it was built. And that is accurate. I mean, we, we know that's the way it was, it was laid out. Now, if the, if the Spanish did come, they're going to be coming by water uh, from the south. But look carefully at this detail from the map. You can see the palisade across the landward side of the peninsula, and I think you can perhaps even see the little musketeers who are patrolling along this palisade. It's a land defense. It's guarded against Indians, not Spanish. So the Indians are now the mortal enemy and not the carefree inhabitants of a new Eden. So even in a little fantasy map like this, uh, you can see a change in the mental posture of the English, a, a change in their mindset. One of the pleasures of working with the uh, high-resolution images which were generated to produce the book is that I saw details on these maps like these musketeers, which uh, even holding the map itself in my hands, I had never picked up before. Okay, we're changing gears. Now we come to our 
Second and completely different idea of Virginia, the Virginia comprised of Chesapeake Bay and the rivers surrounding it. Captain John Smith, everyone's favorite Virginia map maker, fully understood and accepted uh, the idea of uh, Virginia as Eastern North America. But he drew this map, which was so good and so popular that it mooted the old idea and permanently redefined what Virginia meant in the consciousness of the English. Now, again, West is still at the top, so in your mind's eye, this is Chesapeake Bay. You've got to rotate at 90 degrees, but it's a recognizable and, in fact, fairly accurate Chesapeake Bay with the uh, Potomac, Rappahammock, York, and James uh, flowing, flowing into it. Well, why did Captain John Smith create this, this new Virginia? It's totally divorced from the geography of the lost colony, which Smith himself has now demoted to old Virginia. Uh, the new Smith map has nothing to do with the charter bounds of Virginia. In fact, until much later, there are no maps at all that show legal boundaries. It certainly doesn't have any connection uh, to the pictures we've seen as Virginia as uh, the most of mid-Atlantic North America. It doesn't even really uh, particularly coincide with the area that was settled in Smith's time, which was just Jamestown and a few nearby outposts. The Smith map does bear some relationship uh, to the area that Smith himself had personally explored, but there is a more precise explanation for its coverage, an explanation that uh, I'm borrowing from Professor April Lee Hatfield. First of all, notice the scattered dark letters across the face of the map, uh, like Indians hiding behind trees, P-O-W-H-A-T-A-N, Powhatan. And notice the vignette at the top left, uh, Powhatan sitting in state. This is a map of Powhatan's kingdom and some of the adjoining territory. And Professor Hatfield argues that the English were thinking in terms of supplanting a native ruler as the Spanish had done in Mexico and Peru. So the area of their immediate interest was the kingdom of that ruler, Powhatan's kingdom. So you can see this imperious, almost Roman banner uh, spread across the top uh, with the very clear English name Virginia on the shadowy territory of Powhatan. And what we think of as Virginia today, still think of as Virginia, the area from the Chesapeake extending westward toward the mountains, uh, has its distant origins in the territories inherited or conquered by Powhatan. Although the Smith map was uh, first published in 1612, the map uh, did not gain wide currency uh, in England until the 1620s when it was reprinted with Smith's History of Virginia and when Dutch copies uh, from Amsterdam started to be widely available. And thanks to printed maps, we can put our finger just about exactly on the period when the English adopted Smith's idea of Virginia in preference to the old idea of Virginia as a broad swath of eastern North America. So here's how, it's a little complicated. An English publisher bought the Dutch copper plates that had originally been used for a 1608 Dutch atlas. He translated the text and republished the whole atlas with the maps themselves unchanged with one exception. This was the 1608 map of Virginia, which uh, as you see extends to Florida. That's the old idea. That idea was no longer satisfactory. So the publisher ordered a new map on Captain John Smith's Chesapeake Bay model. It took longer than he expected, so rather than hold up his book, he wrote in the errata that anyone who bought his atlas now could get the new Virginia map for free when it was available and paste it in. When it comes, every buyer of the book shall have it given him gratis. And here's that new map. As you see, it does follow the pattern of uh, Smith's map of Virginia. 
not many people got around to picking up their free copy of the 1636 map to paste into the 1635 atlas, so it's not real common. But it does let us watch as the thinking of the English about Virginia changes from the earlier idea accepted on England and on the continent, uh, represented by the map on the left, uh, a map that the English uh, no longer found satisfactory in 1635, uh, to the new idea of Virginia as the area around Chesapeake Bay, represented by the uh, map on the right that they had adopted in 1636. Now, I will say that while this change was very clear and concrete in England, on the continent, the two ideas continued to uh, coexist side by side for the uh, rest of the 17th century and even into the early 18th century. John Smith's powerful visualization of Virginia as the area around the Chesapeake endured for a century and ultimately supplanted the earlier concepts of Virginia. The Dutch, the great map makers of the era, copied Smith beginning in 1618 and continuing into the early 1700s. This is a lovely Dutch map of Virginia. Uh, the engraving and the coloring are much more sophisticated than the Smith map, but when you start to study the geography, there is almost nothing here updated from John Smith's 1612 survey. So at the end of the 17th century, whether you looked at the best English map or the best Dutch map, the outline was the same. Virginia remained what it had been for 100 years. Now, in terms of the uh, official boundaries, the creation of Maryland in 1632 on the north, you know, it's Lord Baltimore's coat of arms up there, and the uh, Carolina in 1663 on the south uh, reduced the north-south extent of the legal borders of Virginia. And beginning uh, in London in the 1670s, maps like this even improved uh, the geography over Smith. Uh, the telltale sign of a newer map as opposed to a Smith map is that the eastern shore is now skinnier. On Smith's, all the Smith and Smith derivative maps, it's, it's very fat. But these uh, developments, the new colonies, uh, the improvement in the geography, they did not change the Smith conception of what piece of the Earth's surface comprised Virginia. For generations, Virginia remained a coastal enclave. And this is one of the latest, uh, almost last version of that conceptualization. Certainly probably dates from after 1700. And we, we've been talking about a unbounded place for 20 minutes. Now, all of a sudden, we have boundaries. Uh, you can see they're not based on anything except the mapmaker's imagination, but they did go to some trouble to insert them. This is a very old copper plate, probably 70 years old, uh, that Falk and Schenck have engraved this new boundary on. They also added a latitude-longitude grid at the same time to be super scientific. Uh, mapmakers and Presumably, their customers were starting to think of Virginia in more modern terms, no longer as some misty, mysterious Patagonia, but as a political entity whose jurisdiction extended to its borders. So a map needed to show those borders. And uh, if the cartographer didn't know them, you know, he could make them up. <laughs> Only after 1710, and really not until the 1720s, uh, do cartographers turn their attention to the interior. So the 18th century brings us to a third uh, Virginia, the first, remember, being the great unbounded swath of uh, North America, uh, the second being the Chesapeake watershed as mapped by John Smith. This third Virginia is no longer centered on the bay, but it extends from the Atlantic uh, to the Great Lakes. It's Lake Erie up there. What created uh, this third Virginia, was an enormous migration pouring out of the old, now well-settled Chesapeake Basin into the Piedmont. The population quadrupled in 50 years. It's some of the fastest population increase recorded anywhere, anytime. Those of you who do genealogy, when you look at the uh, families on your 
trees uh, in the middle two-thirds of the 18th century. They're, they all have seven, eight, nine children, and they didn't all die in infancy. Uh, it's just uh, enormously fecund time uh, in Virginia and in North America. Well, this map reflects the very first steps of the process of movement into the Piedmont. Uh, it shows the frontier settlements of Germana and Manikin. Manikin, of course, is just a little west of where we are now, just west of Richmond. The, the settlers, uh, of course, came for land. The best land in Tidewater had already been taken up, so they started surveying and settling the Piedmont. It's interesting that this map, uh, like the one we just saw, and it's not too far from being contemporary with the one we just saw, has its own imaginary boundaries. Uh, they're not copied from each other. Uh, it, again, it's just the map maker has put in, put in boundaries. There's something about the uh, zeitgeist uh, in the, the early 18th century that uh, all of a sudden, if you had a map, you had to have boundaries. So to return to this, uh, this third Virginia, uh, there was a frenzy of mutually reinforcing pressures, natural population increase, immigration, surveying, uh, land grants, and in only about 20 years, now that's a very short time compared to the over 100 years that the John Smith picture of Virginia lasted, in only about 20 years, large parts of the interior of Virginia were surveyed and mapped. As a result, for the first time, you begin to see local maps rather than maps of Virginia as a whole. Uh, this one is not of the interior, but of the entrance to Chesapeake Bay. Uh, it includes uh, Norfolk uh, and Williamsburg uh, there. And you, of course, know about William Byrd's involvement in surveying the dividing line between Virginia and North Carolina. Byrd's uh, principal surveyor was a man named William Mayo, who more than any other single person was in the middle of this uh, frantic process of mapping out inland Virginia in these decades. Uh, Byrd said that the settlers along the line were intensely interested in learning on which side their residences fell because if in Virginia, they must have submitted to some sort of order and government whereas in North Carolina, everyone does what is best in his own eyes. <laughs> the layout of the map is a little confusing, but this bottom part, the bottom register, is an enlargement of the right-hand third of the top part. So this is a dismal swamp. This is the enlarged dismal swamp. And we have these uh, beguiling creatures of the countryside to decorate it. Amidst all this uh, surveying, Richmond was laid out in 1737 uh, by Colonel William Mayo, the same man I just spoke of. Uh, and although this map is a couple of generations later, it is the first printed map of Richmond. So to repeat, in a relatively short period, the land between the fall line and the mountains was surveyed and settled. And this made it possible to create a new map uh, reflecting this new vision of Virginia, assembled from the surveys and maps that had accumulated during the preceding 20 or 25 years, and supplemented with uh, whatever work was necessary uh, to fill in the blanks. And you will all recognize that new map. It's the it's Joshua Fry and Peter Jefferson's great map of Virginia. Peter, of course, Thomas Jefferson's father. But you can't see much detail on this slide, but you can easily see what I want to talk about. I mean, look at the scope of Virginia there. Virginia is no longer the country comprised of the land around the perimeter of Chesapeake Bay as it had been only 25 years before. And this was not a retrogressive or primitive map in 1728. The uh, Halley whose name is attached to it is the same one we remember through Halley's Comet. That was, that was cutting edge in 1728. And then only 25 years later, we have this. So now the Chesapeake is merely the east coast of this great inland realm, England's greatest North American colony. The west is the Ohio Valley. Uh, and where is the center of the new realm? Well, if you, if you do diagonal lines through the map, you would discover that the center is pretty close to Albemarle County, 
the home of the map makers, Joshua Fry and Peter Jefferson. This new visualization of Virginia was not a product of changes in its legal boundaries. It was a product of the settlement of the Piedmont, of growing population, growing wealth, all of which went along with an independent outlook, although, of course, political independence was not yet there. Uh, and in place of the uh, non-boundaries or imaginary boundaries that you've seen on the earlier maps, now there is an intense concern with uh, laying down very precise boundaries, turning wilderness into property. This little piece of the map marks and labels uh, the boundaries of Virginia with uh, Pennsylvania and Maryland, and it even has Lord Fairfax's boundary line running across there. Virginia-born uh, John Mitchell used the Fry Jefferson map, the map you just saw, to create his great map of North America. So it's a view of the uh, royal province of Virginia, the realm of Virginia in its larger American context. Uh, the map was originally created to contradict the claims of the French to the Ohio Valley. Uh, so it's, it's careful to show uh, Virginia, including the old Northwest. And also it even shows the uh, charter lines, hard to see on the slide, but it uh, marks and labels the charter lines of Virginia extending out toward the Pacific. The English victory in the French and Indian War had two consequences uh, for Virginia's boundaries. England relinquished its claims uh, to the lands between the Mississippi and the Pacific Ocean. So that put an end uh, to Virginia's ancient charter limit extending to the Western Sea. But at the same time, it did seem to secure the Western lands around the Ohio, the old Northwest, this area. It seemed to secure that uh, for Virginia, which was important because Virginians had invested out there uh, through the Ohio Company. They had really fought the war uh, to guarantee uh, and uh, to e eject the French from, from that part of, of the colony. George Washington was one of the uh, investors, and he was one of the soldiers. Uh, in fact, as a soldier, he had a right to thousands of acres of bounty land uh, that he earned for his services in the French and Indian War. But suddenly, there was a problem. In order to minimize friction with the Indians, England, in the proclamation of 1763, prohibited all settlement beyond the Alleghenies. That is, it foreclosed any new land grants in the West, and of course the good land in the East had already been taken up, so there was George Washington high and dry with rights to a lot of land, but no land to uh, exercise them on. Uh, and then to add insult to injury, in the Quebec Act in 1774, England unceremoniously lopped off all Virginia's lands west of the Ohio River and put them under the administration of the province of Quebec. Now this is a, a 1774 edition of the map and it's been colored to show the Quebec Act. Uh, and it's interesting to see what it did to Virginia. The Virginia's cut in two. Uh, V-I-R-G is now in Quebec. And all we're left with is I-N-I-A. <laughs> in, in forcefully conveying the amputation of so much of the great imperial realm of Virginia, the map highlights one of the grievances that led to the revolution. You know, the Declaration of Independence recites that one of the sins of George III is enlarging the boundaries of a neighboring province. Well, they're talking about Quebec. Uh, you read it, and it seems pretty abstract and insignificant, but when you see it on a map, uh, you can understand the indignation of the Virginians. A picture is worth a thousand words, and all of these maps are pictures of our shared history. George Mason, the author of the Virginia Declaration of Rights, said that the sequestration, so they had sequestration in those days too, the sequestration of Virginia's western lands was a plan to divide, weaken, and enslave the colonies and that it led to the revolution. 
Well, there's a happy ending after, the revolu after winning the Revolutionary War and so ending uh, English restrictions on Western land grants, George Washington was at long last able to get a grant for the acreage to which he had been come entitled quarter century earlier in the French and Indian War. And this is the survey that's attached to the actual 1784 grant of uh, 10,990 acres uh, on the Kanawha River, present-day West Virginia, to, to George Washington. Washington's biographer, recent biographer, Joseph Ellis, wrote, one can interpret Washington's victory in the War of Independence as a successful effort to secure his control over holdings in the Ohio Valley, which we had, he would have lost if the American Revolution had failed. So this has been a lightning tour of three Virginias, First, the vast, amorphous, unbounded Virginia of the 16th and early 17th century, good part of North America. This is the Virginia of in the beginning. All America was Virginia. And I'll do a commercial. They have wonderful T-shirts in the gift shop here uh, with that quotation. Oh, it's a nice, nice thought. Um, second, uh, you have the Virginia of the Chesapeake Basin, as uh, outlined by Captain John Smith. Uh, this is an idea that lasted uh, well into the 18th century, and then finally the great imperial realm of Virginia encompassing a clearly bounded territory extending from the Atlantic through all of the old northwest over to the Mississippi uh, and down to the North Carolina border. So the story of uh, how Virginia jumped around in North America in the minds of Europeans is just one of the stories these maps have to tell. There are a lot of other stories, too. Uh, the Revolutionary War, uh, Thomas Jefferson is a big player. The Civil War is uh, always interesting. Uh, many, many stories uh, told by the maps of Virginia over, over the centuries. I hope you enjoyed this small sampling, and I think we still have time for some questions. Thank you very much. enjoyed your uh, lecture very much. Uh, in your studies, when they issued the uh, 1763 proclamation, did anybody do a map that showed that line, or was it just in text? Uh, there are, as far as I know, no printed maps that show the proclamation line as such. The proclamation was supposed to run along the uh, tops of the, the Alleghenies, in other words, the watershed between the Mississippi Valley and, and the Atlantic. Uh, and there are maps that show, you know, the, the Allegheny Ridge. I understand there are manuscript maps in the British archives that do what you are speaking of, that actually draw a line on the map uh, that uh, reflects the proclamation line beyond which there was to be no farther uh, settlement. Uh, I haven't seen those, but uh, I'm dealing mostly with printed maps here, and I can say pretty definitively that there isn't any contemporary printed map with that line on it. I've been following the story proposed by Gavin Menzies of the Chinese discovery of America in 1421. Would you like to comment on that, sir? Um, I read uh, Menzies' book. Uh, I'm not an uh, expert on Chinese history. As it happens, my son is. Uh, but from the standpoint of cartography uh, and the standpoint of uh, my uh, son's views, uh, there is very little uh, to support Menzies' notion beyond the undisputed fact that the Chinese at that period did have large fleets that made their way, say, to the Indian Ocean. But that's about as far as I'm comfortable with it.
Yes, sir. Of all your maps of Virginia, which is your favorite and why? <laughs> I'm going to show you. This is my favorite map of Virginia because uh, it preserves that notion of Virginia as a almost miraculous, uh, uh, a, a Garden of Eden type place. It's a place where there uh, is lakes with uh, gold, the Appalachian Mountains, uh, just the sheer beauty of the landscape. And one thing that I think resonates with almost everyone is that sense of the uh, loveliness of the place that we live that is conveyed by these maps. Yes, the, uh, you showed maps with North Carolina and Virginia, and there's a, a little blip in, in the North Carolina-Virginia um, map. It doesn't go straight across. Could you, do you have any explanation for that? Uh, yes. Uh, the the North Carolina uh, Charter uh, of 1663 set the boundary line at 36 degrees north latitude. Uh, that did not, turned out not to include some of the Albemarle country that people thought should be in North Carolina. So it was changed with very shortly, two, three years, to 36 degrees 30 minutes which moved it uh, a little bit north. Um, there was an agreed starting point, which was Currituck Inlet, and the, uh, the line was to, to run, uh, I mean, they sort of stipulated that Currituck Inlet was 36 degrees, uh, 30 minutes. The line was to run due west until it hit a particular river. If it uh, hit that river in the wrong place, it was to go down that river to a junction with another river. Uh, it did hit the river in the wrong place. They did go downriver to the junction. Very small, it's about half a mile uh, is, is the blip you're talking about. And then ran west from that junction all the way to the mountains. Um, yes, and I think it was 1787, George Washington took a month to survey his land and he wrote a day-by-day -day diary of his trip from Monticello to uh, West to West Virginia. Do you know if anyone has done a map uh, outlining that trip? Uh, you speaking of Washington, you mentioned Monticello, Jefferson, are you talking about I'm, I'm talking about George Washington. George Washington. Huh? Okay. Um, I don't know, but there is a book uh, that came out about two years ago on the maps in George Washington's life, and that is would be a good place to start to see if if, if that path has been uh, has been retraced. Okay, because he went all the way out to West Virginia and then came back and names all the rivers and bridges and. I didn't know if anyone had had taken the time to do that on a... There's an interesting uh, a man named uh, Albert Gallatin, Gallatin, who was uh, Secretary of the Treasury under Jefferson, uh, was a great admirer of Washington. So, and Washington did own these lands uh, in what's now West Virginia. Gallatin went out and got, I guess, very economically a whole lot of West Virginia mountain land uh, it kind of reminded him of Switzerland, uh, which was where he was from. And he was greatly distressed to find that nobody was interested in buying his land that had these picture postcard views of mountaintops. It wasn't much good for anything except the picture postcards. Uh, this would be substantially later than the time you're talking about, but I've always been interested in the, the Virginia line when it touches Tennessee, there's a little up thing there where Tennessee kind of nudges up above the line. Why is that? Um, the short answer to that question is that I don't know, but <laughs> I, I, I'm sure there is a, uh, uh, an explanation. And there is, in fact, a website uh, that has uh, an account of Virginia boundaries on it. If you, uh, if you Google uh, Charter Boundaries of Virginia or something like that, you can 
you can fairly quickly get to a place that uh, will explain all these things. And there are a lot more details. Uh, for example, the, uh, there have been uh, centuries of litigation literally over the Maryland boundary line because it has to do with the high water uh, mark uh, uh, point on the Potomac River and where that is and how it changes and who owns what and uh, their Supreme Court cases. There, uh, the story of the line with West Virginia is a very complex uh, one, and, but uh, they are all questions that have answers. What kind of tools or procedures did somebody like John Smith learn or use in order to make such incredibly accurate maps from essentially being on the same level as the landforms? Um, yep, that, that's a fascinating uh, question. They were able, uh, from John Smith's time and even from earlier, uh, to calculate latitude, that is their distance north or south of the equator, with a considerable amount of accuracy. They did it by uh, measuring the elevation of a celestial body, uh, uh, say the North Star. It didn't have to be the North Star. They had tables that showed them where these things were. They could measure the elevation and, and calculate their uh, latitude uh, uh, remarkably precisely. And they were almost equally remarkably uh, uh, inaccurate with respect to longitude, their distance uh, east and west. But in the case of Smith's map of uh, the Chesapeake, uh, he says he went around on a small boat. He, he could tell his latitude at any given point. Uh, he would have some sense of the distance that he had traversed, uh, sort of dead reckoning in a given amount of time. He could measure angles. Uh, sort of, you know, tri trigonometry, you, you measure an angle and, and one uh, uh, line or two lines and then you can calculate other angles and distances. And I, am I have the suspicion that the dead reckoning aspect of this may be, uh, have played a larger role than we realize. I think they, they were just very experienced uh, watermen and when they got on a boat and traveled 20 miles, they knew they had gone 20 miles, but uh, those were the basic, uh, the basic tools. Were there any guidelines that the mother country used in awarding acreages and honors to the different uh, landowners that we now have? Washington, of course, in his military and political, but the Lord Proprietors down in Carolina. Could you elaborate any on on how that was done and what procedures and guidelines they used on it? Well, there are uh, two different parts of this. Uh, you perhaps not asking about the bottom end, but an awful lot of land in Virginia uh, uh, was originally granted as head rights for the uh, transportation of uh, immigrants to Virginia. F 50 acres ahead, you would accumulate uh, head right certificates till you got up to a useful acreage, 200 acres or 500 acres, and turn them in and you uh, could get a grant for that amount of land. The uh, enormous grants that I think is probably what you were uh, more focused on, in the case of the Fairfax proprietary, it was Charles II's gratitude to the people who had stood by him during the English Civil War when he was in exile, uh, when he came back into power uh, to reward a group of them uh, he made this giant grant uh, uh, in the, uh, between the Potomac and the, and the Rappahannock in, uh, in northern Virginia. And that grant was originally made to a group of his followers, but it was consolidated over the years and eventually all came into the hands of Lord Fairfax. The uh, Carolina proprietors, uh, I think it just becomes a matter of what kind of political leverage uh, you have in uh, England, as it certainly was with the Fairfax grant, the, the uh, Ohio Company spent thousands of pounds, years and years, uh, had their agent in London lobbying for them. Uh, they would give shares to all the uh, important people. I mean, George Washington wasn't the only stockholder in the Ohio Company. I think Governor Dinwiddie probably had some shares. He, they tried to create a community of interest and then to use that uh, to get uh, uh, grants from the uh, uh, 
Board of Trade and Plantations uh, in England, or recommended by the Board of Trade and Plantations, and it didn't work. I think the Ohio Company never did succeed in uh, making good on, 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 its, uh, on its requests. So it was uh, hit and miss. But uh, really, at the end of the day, those 50-acre grants that were aggregated probably account for more of Virginia's territory than, uh, uh, than these giant proprietary ones. Thank <laughs> you.